on September 4th, 1904, an article was printed in the New York Times that brought international attention to someone truly spectacular. Almost 4,000 miles away, living in a shed off the side of a tenement house in the north side of Berlin, lived a performer, only nine years old, who was shocking audiences with his abilities to calculate numbers, make intelligent observations, and answer almost any question posed to him with an ease that was almost becoming unsettling. Because before he existed, such things seemed impossible. What made all of this even more interesting was that this particular performer was, of all things, a horse. His name was Hans. Clever Hans, and he was clever, so clever that he would change the way we understood animal behavior and human behavior to the degree that he would change the way we carried out scientific experiments. And I can't wait to tell you his story. Come with me and meet the extraordinary horse that changed everything. This is the story of Clever Hans. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. By the time Hans had been published in the New York Times, he had gone through four years of training. He was trained by his owner, a retired schoolteacher named Wilhelm van Austin. Van Austin had a reputation for being a bit of a cranky old man. Years of teaching schoolchildren can do that to you, I guess. Van Austin had instructed Hans in the same way he had his students, much to the curiosity of the neighborhood. For years, Van Austin would be seen teaching Hans lessons in front of a blackboard and a counting machine. This was a device that had a collection of differently numbered pieces, small balls, each with a number printed on it. When Van Austin reached for a specific number, Hans would indicate he understood the sum by stomping his foot that specific number of times. So, meant the number three, and so on. Van Austin would speak aloud a number while he showed it to Hans on the blackboard or the counting machine, believing the verbal and visual association would allow Hans to understand both a number when it was written down and when it was said aloud. Every time Hans answered correctly, he was rewarded with a carrot or a sugar cube, something he very much enjoyed. And it wasn't just numbers Hans was being taught. He seemed to know colors, the numerical value of gold, silver, and copper coins. And eventually Van Austin felt Hans was ready for arithmetic. He began teaching him how to add, subtract, and divide. And Hans could calculate whatever numbers you threw at him. He'd always give out the correct answer by clapping his hoof on the ground the correct number of times. According to the New York Times, Hans was the second horse Van Austin had trained, and I couldn't find whatever became of the first. I also couldn't find where Van Austin had acquired Hans, just that Hans had never been used for riding or for driving, something that seems peculiar for a healthy grown horse at the turn of the 20th century. While training Hans, Van Austin was the subject of some ridicule. For one, he was already unpopular since he was so grumpy. 
and two, the neighborhood thought it was weird that he was instructing a horse as if it were a human child for four years in his backyard. But the ridicule and the jeers ceased when Van Austin began to show audiences just what this horse could do. Hans wowed audiences with his math skills. He could also clearly distinguish the number of different people in his audience. When a mixed group of girls and officers were placed in a line in front of him, he correctly gave the number of both girls and officers standing in line. He could even spell out their names. One of the officers was pointed to, and Hans was told his name was Count Donna. A half hour later, when the same officer was pointed out again, Hans was asked to spell his name correctly. And he did. Hans could tell the time on a watch and give the exact hour of day correctly. He could recognize people from photographs, picking them out of a line, even if they were wearing different clothes when presented to him. He could differentiate between musical tones. Van Austin numbered the different tones of musical scales on the blackboard, and Hans would correctly choose the right corresponding note every time. Hans could tell the difference between straw hats, felt hats, canes, and umbrellas. Once, a line of different colored rags was fastened to a string and showed to Hans. Then a cavalry officer wearing a red hat stepped up next to it, and Hans was asked to give the color of the officer's hat. He responded by stomping his foot three times, indicating the third rag hanging on the line, which was red. This might seem strange to you, since we are pretty sure horses cannot perceive the color red the way we do. So what was going on. Clever Hans was getting attention, a lot of it. Van Austin claimed any horse with fair intelligence could be taught the same things with the same methods he had used with Hans. Eventually, the German Board of Education decided to investigate. They appointed a committee of 13. The members included school teachers, the director of the Berlin Zoological Gardens, a circus proprietor, an army officers, a veterinary surgeon, and a professor from the Psychological Institute of the University of Berlin. This committee could find nothing, indicating Hans's answers were not genuine. Their findings were reported to the New York Times on October 2nd, 1904, and that article reads as, quote, the commission has issued a statement declaring that it is of opinion that there is no trickery whatever in the performance of the horse, and that the methods employed by the owner, Herr van Austin, in teaching Hans differ essentially from those used by trainers and correspond with those used in teaching children in elementary schools. They hold that the methods employed have in principle nothing whatever to do with training in the accepted sense of the word and are worthy of scientific examination." Unquote. They were basically saying that Hans and Van Austin were not deceiving anyone, and that Van Austin's methods of training Hans needed to be scientifically understood because they were different from methods used by other animal trainers of the day. No one had ever instructed a horse the way you would a child in a classroom before, and the committee thought that this might explain Hans's extraordinary abilities. The article goes on to say, quote, Herr Busch of circus fame, who was one of the commission, had openly admitted beforehand that he was extremely skeptical about the matter and believed that the horse had been taught merely to learn a few clever tricks, just like other well-known circus horses. Now, however, he admits that he was mistaken." Unquote. 
So it seemed that Hans's intelligence and abilities were genuine, and he really did have a special talent. It just wasn't something that anyone, not even his trainer, Wilhelm van Austen, had thought it was. You see, Hans was clever, very clever, just not in the way everyone had expected. And he, this horse, had outsmarted everyone. And if the investigations of Hans had ended with the Committee of Thirteen, we may have never known just how he was pulling all of this off. The findings of the commission were striking, and they drew the attention of psychologist Oscar Funkst, who then took up the case of clever Hans himself. This time, the results would not only be surprising, but they would enhance our understanding of the scientific method. When Oscar Funks investigated Hans, he did so in a way that was much more methodological. Figuring out why Hans was so intelligent was tricky, because since Hans was a horse, Oscar couldn't just ask him how he knew what he knew, something that still frustrates animal behaviorists today. Oscar wanted to see if Hans was merely responding to cues given to him by Van Austin. This was easy to test. All he had to do was have someone else besides his trainer ask Hans a series of questions while Van Austin was completely out of view. This way, his trainer would not be able to give him the answers to the questions asked. So, someone else other than Van Austin asked Hans a series of questions while Oscar observed. And Hans still answered them correctly with the same level of accuracy. It didn't matter who was asking Hans a question, and it didn't matter if Van Austin was present or not. Hans could still come up with the right answer about 90% of the time. That was an important revelation, because it proved Van Austin was not tricking or swindling anyone. He genuinely believed his horse was intelligently answering questions. To make sure Hans hadn't simply memorized the questions he was used to being asked, he was given a different set of questions, one he had never had to answer before. And he still got them right. So it wasn't memorization, either. Oscar had Hans answer questions without an audience, wondering if he had been getting cues from spectators. Again, he answered the questions correctly. He was also asked questions in front of an audience without being able to see his trainer. Again, full points. But then, Oscar decided to give Hans a series of questions that his trainer Van Austin did not know the answer to. When Van Austin asked Hans these questions, he only answered correctly 6% of the time. Likewise, when blinders were put on Hans and he was unable to see either his trainer or his audience, he was unable to answer correctly, even simple questions. Hans was only able to answer questions correctly when someone he was watching knew the right answer. Hans wasn't answering the questions, he was reading the people around him. This horse had learned how to accurately interpret human body language and facial expressions on an exceptional level. All those years Van Austin had been teaching arithmetic to this horse, the horse wasn't learning math. He was learning how to respond to the subtle cues of Van Austin and the audiences watching him. Hans responded to questions with hoof taps. When the audience or the questioner saw that Hans was approaching the correct answer, their facial expressions and posture would show signs of tension. When Hans reached the correct number of taps, those expressions and postures would change and relax. Hans learned that this meant he had succeeded in securing himself another sugar cube. 
This is how we came to understand that an experimenter's involuntary cues in a scientific setting can inadvertently influence a subject's answer to a question. This has quite appropriately been dubbed the clever Hans effect, also now referred to as the observer expectancy effect, and it shows that the presence of a researcher can influence the responses of participants in a study. And that holds true for both animal and human subjects. This is a big deal because it means that an examiner can inadvertently project their own bias onto a subject, which muddles the data. There are now ways to avoid this, and any good researcher will go to great lengths to prevent the clever Hans effect. For example, a double-blind research design can be implemented. This design ensures that neither the participants nor the researchers know which participants are in the experimental groups or the control group. Van Austin had no idea his horse had been responding to his subtle cues instead of his years of teaching. I can imagine he was fairly dismayed at Oscar's findings. Van Austin had put a lot of time and energy into training Hans. He had stood outside trying to teach math to a horse in his backyard for years. I'm sure he didn't want to feel that that time had been wasted. And it hadn't been. Because of this horse and because of Van Austin, we have learned so much about animal and human behavior, and it has truly aided in improving the way we do research. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know I like to get a little psychologically nerdy sometimes. This is one of those times. We are unconsciously affecting one another all the time. Most of the time, we don't even know we're doing it. Dr. Seigel Barside, professor of management at the Wharton School, described unconscious mood manipulation in her publication titled The Ripple Effect, Emotional Contagion and Influence on Group Behavior. I've referenced this before in the Shackleton series, so it might sound familiar if you've trekked through that series before. Sorry. Dr. Barside found that when we're engaging in communication with those around us, we get 7% of our emotional understanding about what's going on from the words being spoken. 38% of what we perceive comes from our understanding of the verbal tone of the person talking. And 55% most of our understanding comes from reading the facial expressions of other people. We even start mimicking the facial expressions of those around us. Our subconscious is designed to pick up facial and verbal cues because as we evolved, being able to read the moods and intentions of those around us was probably a pretty valuable survival skill. These mimicry effects have been found in studies examining infants, some as young as a few days old. This suggests we have an innate human tendency towards mimicking the behavior of others. Dr. Barside explains that observing the subtle cues of others not only can change our behavior, but our mood as well. This means that even from the time we are infants, we gather at least some of our emotional attitudes and moods from the people who we surround ourselves with, or are forced to be surrounded with. And it doesn't matter where someone is from, this is cross-cultural. That suggests that unconsciously reading social cues is not a learned behavior, but something we evolved to be able to do. It's human, and it's also animal, and most of the time, we don't even realize we're doing it. That's why it can be so hard when conducting research on other people, whether any of us mean to or not, we're affecting those around us consciously and subconsciously all the time. 
It's so fun to me that our scientific understanding about the way we unintentionally affect one another got its start to a good degree because of a clever horse that lived in a shack off the side of a house in the early 1900s that outsmarted everyone, and a grumpy old guy with a chalkboard trying to teach him math. So what happened to Oscar and Hans and his dutiful trainer Van Austin? Oscar Funkst published a paper with his findings on Clever Hans, and you can read it today for free. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's super long and dry in a 20th century German scientist kind of way, but it's very informative. Van Austin passed away a few years later, in 1909, at the age of 70. Clever Hans, who was now not quite the sensation he had been, but was no less clever, was bequeathed to Karl Kral, a goldsmith who had several horses of his own. And it may have all ended that way, in a happily ever after for Hans, had it not been for World War I. When World War I broke out, it's believed that Hans was, like so many other animals, sent out to the front. We will never know his true fate but though it may be unlikely, since the trenches of World War I were such a brutal place, I hope he had a happy ending full of carrots, green pastures, and plenty of sugar cubes. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Clever Hans and his remarkable story. I'll be back again in three weeks with something new for you. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. You can join the ranks of some of the best patrons in existence at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also now make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Sound effects and background music was licensed through Envato Elements, theme song from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay awesome. And until we meet again, go make some history.